Welcome, everyone, to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. It is a banner day for me. It is not often, as a matter of fact, it never happens that I get to speak to two of the best-selling authors in the UK in one day. Uh, Both gentlemen are international best-selling and highly awarded authors. Um, I spoke to one earlier. His name is Steve Cavanaugh. He wrote a book that just released yesterday called 13, probably one of the most brilliant books I've read in years. Um, Right now, I have with me another very, very highly acclaimed author who in his under his real name is also highly awarded and also a bestseller. I am very thrilled to welcome to the show, Halen Beck. Halen, welcome to Authors on the Air, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Are you in um, Ireland? I am about just about half an hour outside of Belfast as we speak. Ah, okay. So you're kind of right, at, right on the borderline then, correct? Um. But yeah, maybe about 20 minutes from the border. Um, Very good. Very yeah. good. You've just released a new book, and this is called Lost You, um, a novel. It is so provocative and such a psychological mind screw. I don't know any other way to say this except for the fact that it is brilliant, and readers everywhere are talking about this book. Um, My previous guest, Steve Cavanaugh, mentioned Lost You and this book. Congratulations on its release. Um, Would you you tell us, you're very welcome, will you please um, tell us a little bit about Lost You? Lost You opens um, with a woman on the roof of a hotel standing on the edge with a young child in her arms uh, threatening to jump. And uh, from that opening, it steps back in time to, to, to tell the reader how this woman wind up there and what were the circumstances and it, and it goes back to a woman called, called Libby who is a single mother who's just got her first book deal and she goes on vacation to um, a resort in Florida and in a moment, just a moment of inattention her little boy uh, runs off uh, three year old Ethan and into an elevator and starts hitting the buttons and before she can get to him the doors close and then he's gone. Mm. And uh, and the book delves back further than that. We soon find out that um, Libby's real worry isn't that Ethan is lost. Her real worry is that he's been found. It's a truly twisty story. Um, and it it took me a while to, even when you were leaving all the clues, the breadcrumbs, it took me a few minutes to to figure out where you were going with the story. And um, when she f- finds the child with another woman, she refuses to, the woman refuses to release Ethan. And the woman said to her, but I'm his mother. Yeah. It is a stunning twist in this very odd story to begin with. And I mean odd in such a good way. Um, I don't know that I've read a story like this before, Helen. And um, tell me how you get your ideas and inspirations for stories. And I'm sure people ask you that all the time. But what I'm thinking of in, is 
you know, do you have a concept for a story or do you have a character in mind before you start writing? Um, for me, it very often comes from something very, very small. There'll be just one little thing that will have happened to me or something that I've seen or something that's popped into my head. And the novel then is kind of extrapolating from that small thing. Um, in, the, in, the, in the specific case of Lost You, it actually goes back to um, when we as a family went on vacation to Spain um, a few years back with our then three-year-old. And he developed this fascination with the elevators. And okay, uh, we had to keep watching because he kept running into open elevators and hitting buttons. And it occurred to us that if he ever managed to get into one and the doors closed, how do we know where he wound up? How do we know which floor he'd gone to or got off on? And um, and I remember one time specifically we were, were coming out of our hotel room. We were on the top floor of this uh, resort in Spain. Coming out of our hotel room with all our gear for the day by the pool, so we had like arms full of inflatables and towels and sure. sunscreen, all the stuff. And, and uh, my wife was with my daughter and she was getting the keys over in the door. And Ezra was our little boy, was with me. And I just remember turning for a second to my wife to say, Have you got everything? And then hearing Ezra giggling up the corridor as he ran for the open elevator. Oh my God. And me having, me having to run as he's hitting the buttons and the door's closing on my wrist. Um, and it's that me for a couple of years thinking, what would have happened if he'd gone, if he'd pressed five or six buttons and the elevator stopped in all these floors? How do we know which floor he got off at? Um, and that idea frightened me and uh, it, it stuck with me that long. I realized, hang on, I've got to write a story about this. Um, yeah. But uh, when I did sit down to write it then, I realized it it needed more meat to it. And simply it a little needed an- another story. Right. You need another story to, yeah. to, to make it not a short story. Yeah. Um, it's every parent's nightmare, I think. Even being in a grocery store and having your child just out of your sight for a moment. Yeah. Because there are so many predators we never know. We never know. And, um, and, and of course, the vast majority of people are lovely and they're going to say, you know, where's your mommy? Where's your daddy? But, but it's the uncertainty of not having eyes on your most precious cargo that you would, I would imagine, throw anyone near to a heart attack if they couldn't find their child. So you've given this a just not one twist, about 14 twists with the new character that enters into this. Um, I'd like to reveal to our audience, the listening audience, that Helen Beck is also known as, that is a pen name for international best-selling and highly awarded author Stuart Neville. So for right now, I'm going to switch back to Stuart, although we're talking about a Helen Beck novel. And welcome, Stuart Neville. <laughs> Hello again. <laughs> you um, you are writing decidedly different types of stories now under Halen Beck. Is that why you decided to choose a pen name? Because your stories are so different than the ones you wrote write as yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the. Uh oddities of crime fiction is that authors tend to get um, associated with a particular location 
Yes. Um, and with, in Rankin will always be associated with Edinburgh. Right. Um, uh, Steve Kavanaugh, he had on earlier his, his Eddie Flynn books or New York books. Um, right. And I've been to Anita McKinty for the most part is Belfast. Other than likewise, my, most of my books have been set in around Belfast. Um, so this novel, moving to a different location, and a really very different style of story. It's still very much a thriller. I mean, I've, I've always been a thriller writer, but um, the two Hale and Black books today have both been quite sort of high concept. Uh, sort of Face Turner thrillers, you know. Yeah. Um, and that that change of style, it, it seemed to me that the pandemic was was something worth trying. Um, but <clears> it's <throat> never been a secret. I've always been open that it's, that it's me. Oh, I, I yeah, very much so, and no surprise, and and I appreciate that. I just thought I'd leave the reveal for a little bit because you know I'm yeah. the reader, not the writer. I have to have a little bit on my side here. <laughs> Um, psychological suspense as a thriller is very, very popular right now. Very yeah. popular. Um, is there anyone who particularly interests you in the genre? Um, there's a British writer called Angela Clark, who uh, is very, very good, and I think uh, is on the is on the verge of breaking out much bigger. I'm not sure if she's published in the States or not, or who publishes her, but um, her most recent novel um, was about uh, a woman falsely accused of murder going to prison and discovering that she's pregnant and all everything that that entails. And, uh, very in-depth for character studies. Um, Megan Abbott, as well, is very much a, a writer that I admire. Um, she's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, she's kind of... Straddles the kind of psychological thriller and noir and literary in a way that, that, that that's yeah. kind of unique and has such a distinctive voice. So um, I know when I read a Megan Abbott book, it, it makes me want to try harder. She does make it seem effortless, doesn't she? She does. And I asked I, her I, about this. I, 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 I remember was asking her because her voice so distinctive. Um, yes. I remember asking her, was this something that was just kind of naturally there or was this something that had to be chiseled out? Um, and she said very firmly that this is something she really has to work at and I admire that and and she's one of the writers where every time I, I read her books it makes me re- reevaluate my own writing, you know? It, 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 it makes me think, you know, I I need, I need to aspire to write that well. Well, I want you to think back when you first started writing. What was your first published book? In the States, it was Ghosts of Belfast. Um, do you look at that book and remember who you were when you wrote that? And are you still proud of the book? Do you know, I'm not sure because I, I've had occasion to go back and skim through a couple of my earlier books recently just for, for my next project that I'm working on at the minute. Um, uh, I'm reading through parts and thinking, you know, this isn't bad and other parts thinking, oh dear. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can, I think I can see that I've, that I've, I think grown a writer, I think maybe, um, I don't know if much yeah. improved, but there are things that I, did then and I don't think I would do now. Um, uh, 
So I'd like to think I'm a better writer now than I was then, but at the same time, you write for very different reasons. Yes, you do. When you're starting out than you do when you're, to 10 years into your career. Are you um, still willing to take risks with your writing? I think so. And the book I'm writing at the minute is, is kind of taking another turn in another direction. Um, this one's under my own name. Uh, and it's uh, takes much more, uh, many more chances with um, because there's multiple point of views and multiple timelines. Part of it's set in the 1960s. Part of it's set in the present day. Some is written in an Ulster Scots dialect, which uh-huh. is something different. Which I hope American readers will still be able to understand. But it's 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 um, I'd never written with an accent before, but I'm doing it now with with this book. Um, from a certain character's point of view, and um, and it, it's, I think that was John Connolly maybe said once that there's every book is reaction to the book you wrote before. Um, and I think because the, the the two healing back books that I've written so far have been quite, I don't think straightforward thrillers, but they're certainly much more in the commercial realm than stuff written in my own name. So the book I'm writing now is almost reaction against that again of writing something that's more um, challenging for challenging for me and possibly more challenging for the reader as well. I I think that sometimes writers underestimate readers who are people who are true readers who really yeah. want to hear something new. And um, I hope you know, as someone who reads uh, four to five hundred books a year, I hope you will always challenge your readers because we want to raise the bar you might think you're raising it but we want you to raise it doesn't you know I I am always when I find a writer I like and I like a lot of different writers and a lot of different genres I want them to up their game because it makes me up my reading game I don't I don't want do you know what I'm saying um Stuart I don't want to know your style because I don't care about your style I want I want you to challenge me and make make me wonder what's going to happen. I don't want to have a preconceived notion of how a book is going to end. And sometimes yeah. I find, and I'm not saying with you, I am saying sometimes I, the thing that lets me down is that, um, you know, it's hard to come up with a new story and it's hard to not to use a trope in, in crime yeah. fiction. But, um, but I always wish someone would push the envelope on their writing. Yeah. Because I I think that that gives um I give a, a writer a lot of points when they push the envelope even if it doesn't quite work the way they hope it does but that they've tried something new. So um do you feel like that's important to know from a reader standpoint? I think it's good to know and 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 I, I totally agree about um uh I don't think, I don't think one should ever underestimate the reader. Yeah, um, and but for me, part of my problem with this is that, that I I get bored. Um, you know, so I I constantly want to go in different directions. Um, and you can probably see that if you were to read through my uh through catalog over the years, you can see it does change direction several times. It does, um, and it's simply because I'm too fickle to sort of stay with uh, in one direction for too long. And I don't think I'll ever be a series writer in the way that um, the John Connolly is, or Lee Child is, or, or say Steve Kavanagh is. 
there's a particular skill there of being able to come back to a character and find new things in them. Book after I book, think which, you're right. You know, and it's a skill that I don't think I possess, whereas I constantly want to be sort of shifting my lens onto different people and different stories and so on. Um, it's interesting you say that because, you know, I think about Lee and every time I've spoken to him and he still writes a great book. You always know what's going to happen in a Reacher book. I mean, ultimately, you know what's going to happen. And I wonder after all, and you, Lee, I'm sure, I, I wonder if after all of those books, he, I remember him telling me this story of when the, he wrote the first one and it got published. And he said, I was getting ready to write a new book. And the publisher came back to me and said, oh, no, we want to buy two more, three more uh, Reacher stories. And he said, okay. Mm-hmm. And it, it continued on his career like that. I often wonder if um, he would like to, and maybe I'll ask him one day when I, when I speak to him, you know, um, would you like to have tried something new and different and, and like started a new series character? Is it too late for someone like him? It's not too late for you. You're already changing it up. I don't think anything's too for a writer of Lee Child's skill. Um, I had the pleasure of editing a short story of his in the Belfast Noir collection that right. Peter McKinty and I edited. Um, yes. That in itself was a, a different kind of story. Reacher wasn't there in any shape or form. It was a completely different story uh, for him. Um, but I remember getting the the, the, the word document from, from Lee and reading it with a view to editing it and not a single comma a period yeah. or letter was out of place. It was like a Swiss watch. It was I so imagine beautifully it was pristine. And, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Beautifully and skillfully written. And I think that's maybe something people don't realize about Lee is, is how much skill and craft and sheer bloody talent there is. Oh yeah, that goes into making those those Jack Reacher books read so easily and so smoothly and so cleanly and so successfully too. Yeah. They are so and highly successful after you know how many books that are in the series. He doesn't disappoint anyone ever. No. So, but I understand what you're saying. It would be hard to write a serious character. I have a, a writer friend who says I will never write a serious character. I just don't want to do it. He he said to, he said for him it would be cheating, it's mm-hmm. cheating his himself and the reader. So he wants to challenge himself to write something different every single time, whether it works or not. He's going to challenge himself. So I was pretty impressed with that. It made me think about series books and which ones work and which ones don't. And yeah. I will tell you, particularly like in the romance genre, um, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm afraid that. Maybe you can tell me how you feel about this, that I think readers get stuck on series characters and it makes them fearful of trying other authors. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Um, I think that is to be borne in mind, they're, they're, they're kind of two different markets within fiction publishing. There are the people like you and most of the, the crime readers, the avid crime readers who are buying maybe two, three books a week. Um, or more um, right. who are reading constantly and then there are the people who buy three books a year right? and take them on vacation. The reality is the biggest pool of money is in those three books a year readers and they're reading a very limited number of authors yes. and, um, and that's why James Patterson works is because people can go 
the targets or uh, Logan's Costco Rivers, or Beaches or Walgreens, yeah. right? You know, and buy um, there'll, be a, yeah. there'll be a shelf of James Patterson books. They're going on vacation. They can rely. They know what they're going to get. They're happy to buy that and read it. And away they go. That's fine. Um, and there's, there's no, I wouldn't knock that at all. If, 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 if people read what they want to read and I thought, Um, If they want to revisit the same character over and over again, or uh, you've seen story essentially over and over again, that's fine. Where I think where I think there's an admirable admirable skill is with likes of Lee Child or John Connolly as well. Is is the way John, for example, is able to keep coming back to Charlie Parker and find something new and find new levels within him and the people around him and keep um, kind of that character new every time. Well, John also, his character changes as his adventure ends. He has a, 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 you know, a distinct change. I don't mean a physical change, but he's emotionally or psychologically changed afterward. And and that, to me, is important. Another thing, um, I want to talk to you about dialogue, because dialogue, to me, will kill a book if it's not done correctly. So I'm reading Lost You. And I found that, and, and this to me is a sign of a really well-written book, that I, you don't have to say he's, who the character is when you're doing a, you know, a, a, a repartee back and forth of a block of dialogue. Mm-hmm. I know who the character is by the way they're speaking, the words they use, their vocabulary, their, their, the timbre, the, the tension in their voice. Um, and I liked when so when I was reading Lost You, I knew who the characters were automatically without you saying, this is Libby, this is, you know, so-and-so, and on and on and on. So I really like that. Um, it gets me, it trips me up. It's a speed bump for me and almost a, a shut the book type of a moment when I can't tell, never mind who the characters are, but if they're even male or female, because the, mm-hmm. it's the same voice. No matter what, do, do you know what I'm saying? So when yeah. you're writing voice, do you when you're writing dialogue, do you have someone read it back to you? Do you ever read it out loud? Um, you know, because your eyes can fool you. So sometimes, I mean, I like reading out loud when when I'm reading really good dialogue or really good narrative. I'll read it out loud because it, you know, ticks off a different part of my brain. How is it for you? Um. I don't read it aloud. I don't have anybody read it to me. Um, I think to be a writer, you have to be kind of a method actor to an extent. Yes. You have to kind of occupy that character's headspace when you want to speak as them. But the other thing that's worth bearing in mind, though, is that um, there's a distinction between dialogue that reads naturally and dialogue that is naturalistic. Um, yes. Dialogue for me should be almost transparent in that words into that character's mouth. You should be able to hear that character say them. Yes. Doesn't necessarily mean that's the way somebody would speak in real life. If that was a real situation. That's what people would actually sign. There's no ums and ahs and uh, and circles right. and, and, right. you know, and repeating yourself that kind of thing. It's 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 an illusion of realistic dialogue, but rather than actual realistic dialogue, if that makes sense. Um, the same thing happens are, in movies and so on as well, you know. Well, but there are different patterns of speech that ca- different characters have. Uh, uh, last week, um, 
D.P. Lyle, Doug Lyle, interviewed John Gilstrap, who's a crime fiction writer, and he does a serious character that I like very much. And John said, because we talked about dialogue, and he said the same thing you did. He said, it's like method acting. And um, it's why it's funny that you said that. I'm hearing that the second time in in seven days, and no one's ever said that to me before. And I've done, you know, 1,200 interviews, literally 1,200. No one's ever said that. And it just (laughs) struck me as so right on point that it, it is like that you you know you don't have to be a woman to write from a woman's pov but you do have to be conscious of the fact that women have a different way of speaking than men yeah especially in your story right yeah um the uh yeah it's because you have to get in that character's head but it's not that's not only about dialogue it's also about how your character behaves in the story. I'm very firmly of the view that character is plot and plot is character. In that plot yes. is not a sequence of events. Plot is a consequence of character's choices. Um, yes. So your, so your character not only has to speak the way they speak, they also have to act the way they act. They have to make the cho- kind of choices they would make. Whether those are cool, calm, calculated reactions or whether they are crazy, self-destructive Actions, right. whatever that, wherever they are, whoever that person is. Um, so to me, it's I don't. I do, I I remember I remember a writer. It might have been Chris Holm. I remember him saying something about um, he much preferred writing action to dialogue. It might have been Chris. Um, but he's uh, a good guy. Yeah. He is. But, um, but for me. Dialogue is action, if that makes sense. I think it is, too. I agree with you 100%. I would be bereft if I had to read only dialogue. So um, I want. I think emotion is, is also action. Um, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, thought patterns are action. Um, decision-making is action, uh, as well as just obviously movement is action. So... Uh, I I don't like a lot of background that you can eliminate from a story. Yeah. It, I find myself just skipping pages if someone is describing something, especially if it's the second time in the book they're describing it. I want to skip over that and, and move forward because I don't need to know that. It's not salient to the storyline as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's because I, I am I do read a lot and – I have an embarrassment of riches. I get a lot of books every week from publishers around the world. And so I can pick and choose what I want to read. And, um, uh, but you know, that's, that's the happy part of me. (laughs) I get to do that. So I have a low tolerance for, for lousy dialogue and, and bad, bad plot. You know, I have bad plot just drives me crazy. If I can figure it out in the first chapter, I'm, you know, what's the point of reading the book? Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. You know, well, yeah, but you know, bad plot and bad dialogue. What that really is is bad character. Yes. Yes. Um, are you a plotter by any chance? Do you outline either just briefly outline? Do you, you know, look for story arcs and make a, a note card on them, or are you really kind of flying by the seat of your pants? Even though that's really a misnomer. You know, people say you're a pantser. You're not because your plot is going through your head. So it isn't you're just yeah. sitting down and writing willy nilly. But what is your process necessarily 
Stuart? Um, I used to say I don't have a process, but I've kind of wound up with one, I think, more recently. Um, one thing I discovered quite early on is that I had to know how the book ends. I had to know what that final climactic scene is going to be. Okay. Um, when I start also, I need the beginning and the ending. I need the story to pull in a direction. Um, Interesting. I need, you know, because it, it's everything has to be kind of whatever, however many strands or many characters are, they all have to pull to this one point in space and time where everything's going to come uh, to a head. And if I don't have that, the story will just kind of wander aimlessly. Now, do um, you ever write your ending first, your beginning no. and your ending, or do you just know in your mind what it's going to be? No, I know in my mind what it's going to be, and um, and I've had, and, and generally speaking, everything between the beginning and the ending is up for grabs. That's completely free form. Right. Um, and I, I've had stories make drastic turns on the page that I was writing, and that's completely altered the shape of the book, but it's still wound up at that same end point. Interesting. That I always intended to. And Lost You is one of those. There's a, there's a twist in Lost You. Mm-hmm. That I, you may know what I'm talking about here. That I didn't it decide is. on, uh, until the page I was writing it, and really? kind of gasped myself when I did it. Um, and uh, I'm trying to, not to put any spoiler. I actually remember texting my wife at work, thinking, do, "Do you think I could get away with this?" Um, and uh, it worked. <laughs> I mean, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and it, as you know, as you say, it changes the shape of the story. I think but I still it does. Went up, but I still went up you, back at that same point. Where you where you wanted to go? A couple of weeks ago, I was in Key West at um, Mystery Fest Key West, and Jeffrey Deaver was the keynote. And when we were doing mm-hmm. an interview, and and I've known Jeffrey for years and years and years, and we're we're good friends, and I enjoy talking to him, and I always learn something different. And I said to him, just what we were talking about. I said, can you write the end of a book first? And he said, absolutely. He said, you can write chapters and then cut and paste and move them around wherever you need them to go. He said, it's fine. He said, sometimes he gets an idea for a chapter and he writes it down and then he'll plug it into the story if it works. And if it doesn't, that's okay too. But he feels like he has to write things down. Are you ever like that? Do you have... You say, wow, this sounds really good, and I'm, I'm going to write this and see what happens with it. You were just yeah. talking about the plot twist in Lost You. Um, does that happen to you often? In my books, uh, Stolen Souls, an early one had something like that as well, where the story took a completely different direction than I intended. I still wind up right, I always intended as well. But it's... it's um, I don't plan what I do is I have a notebook and I will mm-hmm. scribble little things down here. There. Um, what I do is I write three chapters ahead of myself in kind of a, a really condensed and uh, almost kind of cliff notes kind of form. Interesting. I'll write about, yeah, I'll write about three chapters ahead of me mm-hmm. um, on a notebook writing in my terrible, illegible Handwriting. As long as you can, um, all you you just have to be able to read it. Nobody else. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's touch and go with that, to be honest. But um, <laughs> I will then sit and write those chapters on my computer. Then, um, and then once I've written those three chapters, I'll go back to my notebook and I'll scribble out another three chapters. With. But it's only just a little, being able to see a little bit ahead of myself, and that's all. Sure. 
I'm um, always in, um, what do you think of people who do an outline of 250 pages? Well, you know, every writer's different. Every writer has their own way of doing things. I mean, I know um, James Elroy, for example, writes incredibly detailed outlines. Yes, um, he does. David uh, Morrell does too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I know Elroy spends, can spend years on outline and then write the draft very, very quickly. I know other writers have their cork board with index cards pinned to it and so on. Right, um, right. Uh, so whatever works. At the end of the day, you know, it's 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 everybody has their own way of of, of coming to the story. Tonight, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, Stuart, I I want to ask you a few questions about you. Um, uh, what do you know now that you didn't know when you wrote book one? Um, that it gets harder every book. Does it really? Mm. I think are so. you nervous at the end of your book? Are you worried? Are you concerned? Do you say, oh, my God, I hope my readers like this? Um, I guess that's always there, but usually once I'm done with the book, I'm done, if you know what I mean. Uh, once I get through yeah, all the edits yeah. and go on, usually by that time I'm thinking about the next thing. And it's one of the – I know a lot of writers are the same as this, the curse of this, that you're always yes. excited about the thing you're going to write next. Yes, I hear that a lot. Yeah. Because you haven't managed to mess that one up yet, you know. Is the best thing about writing sitting down and starting or finishing up the 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 end of the story? Finishing every time. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Tell us something about you that we don't know. What would we be surprised to learn about you? Um, oh gosh. I played at Glastonbury a couple of weeks ago. I'm sorry, say it again. I played at Glastonbury Music Festival a couple of weeks ago. Did you? Re- oh, I saw that on your website. Yeah. And what did you do there? Um, I'm in a band with some other crime writers, uh, uh, Val McDermott, Mark Luca Vesa, Chris Brickmeyer, Doug Johnson. Um, and uh, we started playing at literary festivals around the UK a couple of years back. Um, I've heard about this, maybe from Mark Bellingham when he was at at VoucherCon in St. Pete. I may have heard him talking about it then. You guys are kind of well-known. We're starting to get mixed some minerals. I mean, we're kind of a novelty band, in all fairness. Um, We're all crime writers, and our songs are songs about crime. They're all cover versions, so we do, um, like, Folsom Prison Blues and I Fought the Law, Watching Detectives, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but kind of started is, out as a joke. What instrument do you t- play? I play guitar. Okay. And um, I, mean, I, I was a musician in a former life. I, I studied music at college. Oh, really? So, yeah. Um, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own. From playing primarily uh, book festivals, uh, we wound up playing Glastonbury this summer. Um, uh, you know, when we were finishing up our set, Lizzo was on another stage doing her set, you know, that kind of thing. Um, wow. we, we were on the same bill as the Beach Boys uh, the week after at the Cornbury Festival. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of... That's pretty cool, actually. So, you know, if this writing thing doesn't work out for you and you stop winning international awards and having best-selling books, you might have a second career. <laughs> well, see, see, the thing is, in my head, the writing was my second career. I was a musician first. So. <laughs> well, there you go. You can always go back then 
to your first career if this writing <laughs> thing gets boring for you. Um, sir, will you tell everyone where they can find you and Hanlon Beck on the web and on social media, please? Yeah, um, there are two websites, StuartNeville.com and uh, HalenBeck.com. Um, the last two the details about that on HalenBeck.com, I think there should be a link to an excerpt from the book as well, if anybody wants to read it. And yep. um, Twitter is just uh, Stuart Neville, all one word. Um, and I tweet about myself and Halen Beck and guitars and my dog and how to cook a good steak, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, you're not a Facebook user, are you? I do, but it's just a personal friends only kind of thing. Very good. Um, I'm thrilled that you took the time to speak to me. I know it's getting late where you are, and thank you very much for, for taking up this much time with me. Um, I hope I get to meet you when I come to London, and if not, maybe next time you're in the States or or the next time I'm in Europe. And um, the book is called Lost You by Halen Beck, who is also known as Stuart Neville. I highly recommend all his books. You can find them in brick and mortar and online stores everywhere. Stuart, thank you so much for taking so much time with me. Very generous of you. And um, I wish you. you and I wish you all the success in the world. Thank you very much indeed. You're very welcome. And listeners and readers, thank you for being with me. And thank you, Mom and Dad. I'll see you later. Mm-hmm.